Hey, go ahead, grab your Bibles. It's going to be Acts 20 this morning. Uh, if you're in a device, ESV is the version we're in. Again, Acts chapter 20. So what we're doing now is we're just continuing our worship of God. We're worshiping him now by opening his word. And what we need to do is remember to lean into his word. Lean in and listen. And then we're going to finish up our time this morning by scattering and then applying his word by o- obeying it. And so the, the worship didn't just finish with the singing, but it actually continues by the opening of his word. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So if I, if I took a poll this morning, how, how many of you would, would say, man, I would love some encouragement. I would like to be encouraged. I mean, how many of you could like raise your hand and say, man, some encouragement. Some of you guys are like, I don't, I don't need any encouragement. All right. I I see what I'm dealing with this morning. Um, hopefully this message, whether you want it or not, hopefully this message will be an encouragement to you. Of course, the, when we talk about encouragement, it's interesting given who we are and, you know, the, the culture we live in. You always got to ask, like, what kind of encouragement are we looking for? Because the Bible and what we're going to see this morning in Acts 20 is that the Bible gives us just a, a little bit of a, of a different kind of encouragement, a little bit of a, of a, a countercultural encouragement. The Bible is not just asking you to just keep your chin up, right? That's never what God's word is just instructing you to do. You know, just hold on. Just keep your chin up. Just, do, you know, all of these kind of things that we kind of throw at each other that, that in, in certain moments are great. You know, man, just stand strong. You know, just hang in there. Those aren't bad things. Those are kind things. But ultimately, they can be rooted in something that, that doesn't have much rootedness to it, right? I was thinking about, um, man, when I was a kid, uh, I, I raced dirt bikes for a few years. And, you know, we were getting all serious about it, even though I wasn't any good. And... Uh, I, at some point, um, I was able to get some guy to start coaching me and, you know, kind of teaching me how to, you know, give me some good, better techniques and help me with my fitness and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't there just to tell me what a fantastic writer I was because I wasn't, right? And so what he did was he completely rearranged my diet. And he completely, he set me up on, on some kind of a fitness plan. And I had to go practice with him every other day. But because he wanted to see me become a better writer because he was trying to make a writer out of me. Um, He didn't just tell me what I wanted to hear. In fact, if he just was going to sit there and tell me what a great writer I was, not instruct me in all the ways and all the things to make me a better writer, it wouldn't have really been that encouraging because I would have still been getting those 12th places. Now, by his help, I got ninth places because that's where I was at. That's a whole other story. But this is what happens with God's word and the application and the preaching and the way God's word just gets embedded in us is that we become established in the word, right? So as the preaching of the word continues in your life and my life in our hearts, what happens is we become a people of the word. And that's how we become established. So Acts 20, it actually begins with Paul kind of coming in and seeking out believers to encourage. Now, there's a lot. So let me just 
cover some ground here because as, you, as you've noticed as we've gone through the book of Acts, man, we see Paul, he's going to all these cities that I don't know how to pronounce and you don't know how to pronounce and he's making all these journeys and he's going back and forth. I haven't spent a lot of time getting into sort of the history of the places where he's gone or, or all the, you know, getting into the weeds of what his journey looks like and how many miles he's traveled and, you know, all the different regions and continents he's traveled to. That, that's, that, that's been something I've really desired to get into. So I'm pulling back from that. If that's something you're interested in, you probably got some maps in the back of your Bible and you can dive into some of the history of those things, but that's just not where we've been going. So I, I tend to glaze over some of those things just to give you some insight into that, which we're going to get into right here in Acts 20 as we pick up. This is what it says. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, so he's seeking disciples to encourage, he said, farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Uh, so Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Asians Tychius and Trophimus. Yeah, I know. Um, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So what we see is that Paul is continuing his journey and he's looking out for believers that he's already had touch points with, that he's already seen come to faith, churches that have been established, and he's making sure that these brothers and sisters are being encouraged. So when we read through all the different places he's going through, all these different places in Asia and these Greek cities, it can just all, all this, it can just become confusing for us other than to tell us that the word was spreading. And Paul had one thing that was most near and dear to his heart, and that was getting the word out. And, and getting the word out as wide as he had the ability to do. And he's not even traveling alone. The guy got a crew. He has his entourage with him right now. And they're their goal was to get out and make sure that the people of whom the word was preached to are being encouraged still in the word. And we're going to spend the majority of our time now in verses 7 through the end of the chapter. Another big chunk because we've just been taking big chunks here in Acts. But this is what we want to look at. We want to look at the different ways that the word encourages us. And we're going to look at four different ways that the word encourages us. And the first thing is that it's this. The word actually wakes us from the dead. This is kind of a little bit of a, of a funny uh, telling here about what Paul encounters when he uh, comes to Troas. And we'll pick up here in verse 7. This is what it says. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms and said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little 
comforted. And then now we see Paul kind of moving forward from Troas. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. So he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, he, we took him on board and went to Metalin. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Caius. The next day we touched at Samos. And the next day we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. So we've come to this place in Acts where Paul is now trying to get to Jerusalem because he knows that God has some work for him in Jerusalem and he knows that it's going to cost him something. He knows that what he's going to be facing at Jerusalem, which is, which is a church that's starting to go a little bit into decline, he realizes that there are challenges, there are afflictions that are going to be waiting for him in Jerusalem, but he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to get to Jerusalem. And so for the rest of our time in Acts, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Paul making this journey to Jerusalem and then everything that unfolds when he gets there. But let's back up to verses uh, 7 through 12, because this is what happens, all right? Paul preaches this long sermon late into the night, and a brother named Eutychus falls asleep and then falls out the window, I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but it just sounds kind of funny, right? Thankfully, none of you have ever had that experience here. Um, someday you might want to attend a church where the pastor preaches long sermons, and you might even like it, but you're not experiencing that here, right? But here's what I want to key in on is that we were told that Eutychus, it says, was overcome by sleep in verse 9, all right? So listen, we are human beings, and do you know that nobody knows that better than Jesus? That you're a human being? That nobody is more sensitive and compassionate and sympathetic to your humanness than Jesus? I mean, in fact, your, your fallen humanity was so important to God that he sent Jesus in human flesh so that we had someone who could sympathize with our humanness, with our weakness, with our exhaustion, with our fatigue, with our boredom, with our sleepiness, with our slothfulness, with our bad days. Because there are times that we become sleepy before God and his word. And the reason why is because he seems distant to us or he seems unrelatable to us. And sometimes he just seems boring to us. But in fact, it's his word here and what we see with Paul, it's his word that has the power to wake us up over and over Again, that's why Paul's ministry was always gospel-centered. Paul's goal wasn't to go around just doing miracles, right? The miracles f always followed the preaching of the word, and that's what happens right here. So something that we need to reflect on is that maybe, uh, maybe some of you become inoculated to the word, and maybe you've kind of fallen into a deep sleep when it comes to the gospel, but when you hit that dirty, dirt floor of life, it's in those moments that you'll see that it's the only thing to bring you back from that sort of lethargy that you may have fallen into in life. Remember what Peter said to Jesus when he asked his disciples if they were going to abandon him? What did he say? He said, where will we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter was saying, there's no other words that we have to grasp onto that are going to be an anchor to our soul. There's just no other words for us. 
There's no other place we can look at or grab hold onto that is going to give us the kind of life and encouragement and longevity and endurance as your words, Jesus. And so the same word that Paul was preaching to encourage Eutychus far into the night and all the way until the morning, that's a long sermon, all right? It's the same word that miraculously raised him from the dead. But we don't see God's word a lot of times as having that power. Do you understand that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the words that you are reading right now. It's the words that we are reading from right now to encourage our heart, to encourage our souls, you know? I, I, you know, it's funny because sometimes you have these devices and these gadgets and I realize that a lot of times they, they have the option of putting batteries in them or, or, you know, plugging them into the wall. And it's been so ridiculous because I've had, these, I've had these gadgets for years and I realize all I keep doing is buying AAA batteries for them, you know? And I keep putting AAA batteries, AAA batteries, and like $9,875 later, I realize, why, like, why don't you just plug it into the wall? Why don't you plug it into a power source, Right? It's better power and it doesn't run out. I know it breaks down, power runs out, right? But you guys get what I'm saying with that. But a lot of us are just, we treat the Bible and we treat the encouragements that we're looking for to encourage us. We grab the AAA batteries instead of treating the Bible like the power source to plug into. I'm not saying power source like triumphalistically, like just get out there, everything's victory. No, it's actually what's going to help you in the victories so that you don't become self-reliant and what's going to help you in the setbacks and the trials that find your face flat on the floor, right? That's the power source that we need. So the power of God's word, it's what Paul preached and it had the power to raise this brother who sat through a boring sermon, no comments, all right, fell out of a third floor window but was raised to life. The word wakes us from the dead. Secondly, the word gives us guts. All right, the word gives us guts. Let's pick up in 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, knowing what will happen not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and infliction awaits me. So Paul knew what he was getting into. Paul counted the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. And the only reason why he could do that was because of the word that empowered him that he preached to everyone else that he brought it to, right? And he served the Lord, it says, with humility and tears amidst the trials. I mean, this is a brother that would preach and people would make plots on how to take him out. But he didn't shrink from declaring repentance and faith, he said. He's not just shooting his mouth off. He's trying to encourage the elders 
of Ephesus, these places where he had established these church. He's saying, brothers, I need you to be encouraged right now by what God has brought me through to establish you is going to be the very thing um, that keeps you going with joy and with endurance. So the word gives us guts. I just like that word because it's not a high word. The word gives us courage, right? And how did Paul have this kind of courage? I mean, he had no crystal ball, right? What did he say? He said, I don't know what's coming. He said, the only thing I know that's coming is, a, is imprisonment and affliction. So he, he didn't know what was coming, but he knew what was coming, right? And he knew that what was coming wasn't good. Now, this was a costly ministry for Paul. And following Christ is so costly. It's so costly for us. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, you don't have to turn there, but it's a story about people approaching Jesus saying, hey, I would love to join you, Jesus. I would love to come along with you. I'd love to be just part of the entourage. I'd love to take the ride. Ministry looks good. Following you looks good. Probably standing back, kind of seeing just the crowds that are being generated. And so in Luke chapter 9, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus was saying was, cool, but remember, like, I don't have a house. Like, this is not a ministry that you get into because you're looking just to become comfortable in, right? And then to another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said, hey, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So the word and following Christ is not only just sort of the, the it brings you into a place of discomfort. It also calls you to leave behind those things that might be walls and barriers for you as somebody who needs to pursue Christ. And that even includes your own family. And some of you guys have witnessed that. Some of you guys have detached from family members because this decision to be a follower of Christ has not just been a real good vibe within the family dynamic. And it's, it's cost you. I remember when my dad came to Christ and, you know, he had a little bit of an entourage, right? And I remember he told me years later, he said, man, he goes, I lost all those friends. Cost me all my buddies, cost me all my Navy buddies, all these people, I, you know, these dudes that I had been friends with that I went to high school with. It cost me these deep friendships. But he said, that was the cost. And then it finishes here, this passage in Luke, it said, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So it also means that we leave things behind. We leave some of those old longings behind that don't align now with our new mission and our new heart to obey the things of God, right? So following Christ, it costs us. And actually it costs us the things that were previously costing us eternal life because we made them our life, right? So it's an interesting cost that we pay in this life to gain the life that's already been bought and paid for by Christ for us. So humility, tears, and trials. That's what Paul is saying here. 
But the thing about humility, tears, and trials, which everybody who follows Christ is going to experience, is that they form us in such a way that we are forced back to God's word to find not only courage in the face of conflict, but also wisdom in how we view our time on this earth, which, by the way, is incredibly brief. Look what Paul says in verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's not saying that life itself isn't precious. He's saying that he won't even let the possibility of death keep him from testifying the truth of the gospel in God's grace. That's how important it is because his life on this earth and the comfort and the family and the friends and all the conveniences, that was not the thing that was moving him through life anymore. It was the grace of God through Christ. And it's the word of God that gave Paul the courage and the guts to do that. And it's that same word that gives us the guts, gives us the courage as we move through life and a lot of uncertainties, right? So the word wakes us up from the dead. It snaps us. The word also gives us guts. Third, the word sounds an alarm in our lives. Verse 25, he goes on to say, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So the word also sounds an alarm because what Paul is doing here is he's also encouraging them with a warning. He's not only leaving them for good, but he's leaving them with a good conscience which is important, right? Because what did he do? He proclaimed the kingdom and it said that he didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul's hands are clean, so to speak. Not because he was perfect, right? But because he repeatedly preached the whole gospel to them. He didn't manipulate, right? He didn't use underhanded methods. He didn't come in ever with ulterior motives, so he issues a warning to them and says, be alert. He sounds an alarm is what he does here by the word, by saying fierce wolves, he calls them. Now, I don't know if you say the word fierce wolves, I mean, you could have said, you know, some dogs are going to come in. You could have said, you know, some kitty cats might just kind of wander in, you know, off the street. I mean, pay careful attention to the wording that he uses. He says fierce wolves will rise up from the inside and speak twisted things. So he issues a warning. He says, pay careful attention. He's speaking to elders. He says, care for the flock. So whether you know this or not, and if you don't, you'll, you'll know it right now. The burden that's placed on myself, 
Jeff and Zach as elders here at Substance is to pay careful attention to things and to keep our radar up for fierce wolves that come in from the outside or the inside, even more difficult, to draw you away from the word. What's so damaging about that is that when your eyes are drawn away from the word, what happens? Well, you lose vision. And where vision is lost, the foundations for disunity are constructed, right? And what we have to do is constantly dismantle those faulty foundations. Now remember, there are plenty of other words out there that sound really good rather than this word that we preached to you. And it's because they feed you, they feed me what our flesh likes to hear, right? So here's the thing. You put a plate of vegetables or a plate of donuts side by side for me. And even though I love vegetables, my heart is drawn to sugar. It just is. And if you follow me on Instagram, like you know that, right? And the more I eat that sugar, the less I have an appetite for those veggies, And I'm even a guy that likes his veggies. I eat my veggies, right? And you guys are so solemn this morning. The point is, is that the reason why we need to stay just just submerged into the word is because when other words come at us from every angle, and they do, we have the tendency in our flesh to want to lean in. Our appetite is drawn to those other words. And that's why we got to be so careful with the words that we hear and the practices that they are calling on us to adopt that sometimes even look kind of right. But when we put them up against scripture, we find that they are altogether wrong, right? So here's the question for us when we see the way the word sounds an alarm in our lives. And you need to ask yourself this question. And when you go home today, you need to think about this question. You need to call a friend and talk about this question. If you have a spouse, you need to discuss this question. It's this, who are you most discipled by? Who are you most discipled by? For some of us, we're being discipled by wolves and we don't know it because wolves tend to cover their brown fur with white lambskin. That's biblical, right? So who are you most discipled by? Because let me tell you, this, what's happening right now with me, this only happens for 40 minutes every Sunday. And let me just tell you that this is not enough word for you. It's not enough word for you. If you, listen to me, if you have more cable news channels, talk radio shows, podcasts, and Facebook posts speaking into your ear than God's word, what comes out of your mouth stirs your soul, shapes your mind, and enrages your heart will likely be out of sync with the mouth, soul, mind, and heart of Jesus. I just don't know how much clearer I can say it than that. And I rewrote that line 58 times. Paul pleads with them. You can hear the passion coming out of him. You can hear the tears coming out of him because he told them for three years, night and day, he prayed over them with tears. And so do your elders, by the way, when the tears come for us. We pray for you and we plead. 
So the word sounds an alarm because that's one of the ways the word works to wake us up and to give us guts and to encourage us. And then fourth, the word puts grace on our bones. Let's pick up in verse 32. It says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I remember there was a time like 45 years ago when my parents tried to put some meat on my bones because I was a scrawny little kid. Well, it worked like a charm. So thank you, mom and dad, by the way. Um, But the word has the same effect in that it puts grace on your bones. Paul says the word is able to build us up. This is what he says. With the same, he says, inheritance of those who grow, are growing in their faith right alongside of you. So the word inherit there, inheritance, it's important because a person inherits the grace of God when they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And by the way, that grace, what Paul is trying to say, is built up in you and it allows you to become someone whose hands minister to and then benefit everyone you come in contact with. That's the power of God's grace when you allow it to extend to your brothers and sisters. Do you guys get that? When grace is having its effect on one another in the life of a church, some things start happening, right? Grace is what abolishes arrogance. You're not an arrogant church if you are extending grace to one another all the time. It also gives you patience and compassion and forbearance with others. Grace is what makes the heart of Jesus inside you actually beat like the heart of Jesus instead of just a religious churchgoer, right? Because here's the reality. A graceless church is a godless church. We can't be a church without grace and even look ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, we're church. A graceless church is a church that consumes each other rather than cares for one another. But Paul says it's our inheritance that we received in Christ that moves us towards grace and moves us towards generosity and helping the weak. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us, We have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, it means that everything God has given Christ, he is also giving to us by grace because we are now in Christ. So the word puts grace on our bones because we've been given that grace by the shed body, by the shed blood, the broken body of Christ. So how can we show grace to one another? How do we do that right now in these tense times? How do we do it? Well, grace gives brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. Grace helps you remember that you're dealing with a frail person just like yourself. If it wasn't bad enough that you were also frail and fragile, you have a pastor that's probably more frail and fragile than you are and an elder team that's more frail and fragile than you are. 
we can probably never as a church and as preachers stress how invaluable grace is to us. But grace will only be evident in your life where the word has taken root. Because a graceless church is a wordless church. It's a church that cheapens the power of the gospel by not applying it to every aspect of life, which is what Paul is encouraging them with here. Because without grace, we won't be helping the weak. We won't be generous givers. Because a giving spirit can only be formed in the depths of self-denial, which is where grace just starts beaming in like prisms of bright light. When you have this grace on your bones, formed by God's word as an encouragement in your heart, look what happens at the very end of this chapter in verse 36. What happens is as the word encourages your heart, as it strengthens you, as it puts grace on your bones, as it gives you guts, as it sounds an alarm, it breaks your heart for one another. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. See the effect that the encouragement of the word had on this group of elders and their affection for Paul. The word breaks our hearts for one another. It said there was much weeping because they were sorrowful because they would not be seeing their dear brother again. So God's word, it binds us together in such a way that our, our friends, our brothers and sisters of the faith, our pastors are closer than even our biological families. Such is the power and the encouragement and the, and the glue that God's word has for us. Jesus made the comment, Mark 3.35, that his mothers and brothers and sisters and friends were not his biological mother, brother, and sisters, but it was those who did the will of the Father. Do you see that we have something that ties us together deeper than biology here? And as people who are joined together by forgiveness of sins through Christ, man, we possess a unity that is unlike anything else. That's the power. That's the encouragement of God's word outworking itself in our hearts. Paul told the Colossian church, this is what he said. He said, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So to be encouraged by the word means we need to be a people of the word. And a people of the word believe the word. If we're a people of the word, it means we believe the word because we all know that in our regular relationships, a good relationship is built on trust. We can rely on the things that the person is telling us to always be true. And that's why we believe God's word because not one word in it has ever proven to be untrue. So as people of the word, you people, us people, we need to believe God's word. We also need to be feeding on the word. As people of the word, we need to feed on the word. You eat food because without food, eventually you'll die. It's really helpful for us to look at God's word as the same thing for us spiritually. You will shrivel up. You will die spiritually without the nourishment of God's word 
coming into your ears, hitting your mind, helping you to think rightly, dropping to your heart, allowing you to feel and to act and to emote rightly, and then coming out your hands so that you can serve with passion. So people of the word believe the word. They feed the word. They also pray the word. They pray these words for strength, for hope, for encouragement, for faith. We take the words of God, we go down before him and we pray those words back to them, understanding that he is hearing us in that moment. Understanding that the very words that he's given to us to encourage us get to be given back to him and then be given back to us as the way that we grow in strength and in hope. And then a people of the word also apply the word. So we believe it, we feed on it, we pray it, and we apply it because the life you live is always a reflection of the words you live by. Do you realize that? Everything you do in your life says something about the words that you most believe in this life. And so that diet, that steady stream, that submersion into God's word, well, we'll see the evidence of that in the fruit of our lives. Because the people of the word, you know what it does as we close right now? It cuts through the static of our lives. And there's a lot of static in our lives at all times. It cuts through the static. It brings clarity It keeps us on mission. It brings us back to grace. It reminds us to love one another. And so my encouragement to you is receive this word. Give your life to this word. Know this word. See this word as the very lifeblood that it is, that God has made it to be. Let's be a church and a people of the word so that we can serve one another with encouragement that anchors us in those things that God has given us for joy and for well-being and for happiness. Amen. Pray. God, thank you for encouraging us this morning with your word. We have a book of encouragement before us, God, that we would open it, that we would desire it, that we would read it, receive it, believe it. Lord, allow us to feed on it, pray through it, apply it. It's a book full of grace too. And so none of us here today is able to boast that their relationship with the word is not something that doesn't need any improvement, but it's because of your grace, Lord, that you are slow and patient with us. And so, God, we pray that that would change us this morning as we attempt to be people that live by your word, that love your word, and pray that it is evident in how we serve one another, how we love our community, and how we go before you in humility, grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.